Hello and welcome to the PR Week, PR Week's regular weekly roundup of everything that matters in the worlds of PR and communications. My name's Steve Barrett. I'm the Editorial Director of PR Week, going to guide you gently through the last show of summer. Last show of summer. That sounds like a song, doesn't it, Mr. Co-host Frank Washcook? How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on, Steve. Uh, it's the last summer Friday at Haymarket this yeah, week. Yeah, a bit you... sad, isn't it? It is sad. Have you taken any summer Fridays? Uh, one, or yeah. one or two. One or two. I've definitely stepped out a little bit early on Fridays. I'll, yeah. I'll, uh, I'll miss that. I'm not going to lie. It's even if you are working, it, there's less pressure on, isn't it? Because there's no emails coming yeah, fewer in. Fewer emails. You, you, kinda, you can relax a bit. And uh, yeah, I, I took a advantage of it last Friday and it really does lengthen the weekend, um, which isn't always a good thing for me. So I ended up watching sports and what have you in, in a bar. And that's kind of one of the themes of our podcast guest this week. It's Paul Anastasiadis, who's president and partner at MNC Saatchi Sport and Entertainment North America. So, Paul, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm very well. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, we're going to get into some really interesting topics. We all love talking about sports mm. and entertainment. And um, after that, we'll chat about the US Open as a brand opportunity. We'll chat about the continued controversy after the Women's Soccer World Cup. New hire at Edelman, a new lever at H&K, sad news from Finn Partners, and then we'll end on AI. So lots to chat about today. But Paul, you've been at MNC Saatchi for 13 years, I think, and across Sydney in Australia, in London, and then for the last few years in the US. So you've got a good perspective on the global nature of the industry. But first of all, tell us what... What does a sports and entertainment agency do? You know, what, how is that different, say, to a creative agency or a PR firm or a digital firm? What's the sort of special source that requires a special agency for that particular yeah. those particular areas? That's a good question, Steve. I think ultimately the backbone of our business is a lot of our our staff are specialists in publicity. Right, they are comms people. However, we drive toward work and we support partners that may be, uh, you know, rights holders or uh, representatives of the sport and entertainment space, or they could be brands outside of it that want to use some passion within sport and entertainment to reach their consumer. So we're kind of working with um, uh, a lot of different clients that can be in and out of those two ideas. And I think if you look at the type of clients who work with, there's some that are very endemic to, to sport or fitness or music. And there are some that are outside it, work with a lot of spirits and beer clients, work with a lot of tech clients, right? But at the end of the day, some of the things we love the most tend to be in the realm of, of sport and entertainment. So, Yeah, they're real passion points, aren't they? So the, the, if you can engage that passion and attach the brand to it in an authentic way, you're kind of supercharging the opportunity there. That's exactly what we think. I mean, uh, the way we talk about passion point marketing, and we, we, we talk about it a lot, as you can probably imagine, you know, our passions, things we love, all carry already carry inherent attention and emotion right we spend our time and our money and all that on the things we love so as a brand if you can find a truly authentic connection to that thing i already love if you can do that really well you've got a great story to tell whether you want to tell it in pr and advertising and search and all these different places so that's really what we build a lot of our work from you know a strong belief in passions you know when we have uh, existing or new partners it's the first thing we'll ask you know how well do you understand the passions um, behind your consumer target once they know them, begin to dig into them, understand what ecosystem exists around that passion, and then begin to identify, okay, where does our brand have an opportunity to intercept and get in, 
right? And really starting to build something long-term. Some of the best marketing work over the last couple of decades, I think all stems back to great yeah. passion point marketing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you've got the brands, you've got rights owners, sports teams, leagues, franchises, and then you've got events, the big, uh, big franchises, the Women's Soccer World Cup, whatever it is, the Olympics. Uh, we just had the World Championships of Athletics, US Open's taking place at the moment. And then I guess there's a lifestyle element to it where- Completely just active lifestyles and sports that people do that maybe not as competition, but just, uh, you know, whether it's cycling, whether it's running, whether it's climbing, uh, skateboarding, what have you. So there's, there's a lot of different elements to it, aren't there? And that's the beautiful thing about it. I don't think it is a um, all about singular verticals or thinking about uh, sports and lifestyle as these kind of like siloed areas of business that we um, service separately. The reality is ever since I've been in, uh, North America working at Sport Entertainment, we've always had brands within the performance space, right? So whether it's shoe brands, apparel brands, things like that. And the unity between lifestyle fashion and sport lifestyle has constantly been evolving, gets closer and closer and closer together. So you're constantly trying to find what are the nice storylines where our product has a role to play or how can we use our platform to kind of further those conversations? Because um, it's not just about the brands and the products being created. It's also about the and the athletes that are at the heart of sport, I think are even more interested in talking about fashion and talking about gaming and talking about all these other verticals. So suddenly it opens a bridge, right, into these other conversations and something we should take advantage of. Try yeah, and then the talent has started becoming the brand owner, haven't they? They're starting their own brands, whether it's spirits brands or clothing brands or their own franchises. And so it's all getting merged yep. into each other. Give us a couple of examples of activations you've been involved in, which you think really... I sort of represent the work at its highest level and effectiveness? I mean, I think for us, we do all size of work. So we'll work on really big campaigns. We'll work on really quick term, scrappy sort of ones. We did one very, very recently, one of our partners, they've been a long-term sponsor of NASCAR. And what we try to do through the partnership is, you know, celebrate the fandom of, of motorsport and celebrate NASCAR fans are, are a type of fan. That is a, that is a yeah. real passion. That is a real passion. So um, we've done all different types of things with NASCAR, but most recently, we had a, a really nice campaign um, to see out summer that was around, uh, it was the upcoming race in Vegas um, in a few weeks time. And the idea was all around helping a, a couple that both loved NASCAR to get married in pit lane because you know, Vegas is all about shotgun fast wedding. So we're gonna give you the fastest wedding you can possibly imagine inside the pit lane alongside um, our sponsored car. So, and now that's not uh, a huge idea for us, not a huge idea for our partners. But it's just a great example of bringing together what we know our fans love, where we are in that cultural moment, which will be you know a big race in Vegas, and then just continuing to push what our partners are trying to do within that partnership, which is like you know service its fans, bring people closer to the track, these types of ideas. So that's just a really small example, and the idea would be it can be a lot of those in a year, just continuing to engage fans in different exciting and interesting ways. Or it can be some bigger things and, and working in a 360 way, but that's just one example. And are you doing this fan experiences? And, uh, you know, I was at the US Open last night and Amex has got their whole sort of experience area. The sponsors tend to do much more of that these days as well, don't they? Yeah, definitely. I think, look, in my experience, having worked through three different markets with MNC Saatchi Sport and Entertainment in the UK when I was there, that was a good eight, nine years ago now, we specialize very much in what you're describing, which is sponsorship leverage, right? It's really is taking all the rights you get as a partner and understanding where they fit across your marketing channel or internally. Here in North America, whilst that work is something we're capable of doing, we're really dialed in more on the comp side. We want to understand 
we want to look at the rights you have. We want to understand the brand strategy you have. And we want to try and find an interesting story that first and foremost is going to drive attention within editorial press or drive social engagement. That's our first prerogative and the type of work we're doing more here. Type of work you're describing, super important, capable of doing it, but it's we're not really necessarily into the sponsorship leverage aspect quite as yeah. much. Quite as much. You mentioned that. What are the differences in the markets? You've worked in three very different markets mm. um, around the world. First of all, what's the difference? And then how is them? Well, let's start with that. It's a great question because it was one of the biggest jolting moments when I moved from the UK to North America. Steve, maybe you you might understand this, but used to pick up the phone to the Daily Mail all the time, you know, pick up the phone and you're, you're talking to someone, you pick up the phone to someone else. And there was a lot of that. It could, and I know, I know it has changed, but when I got to North America, that is just not how public relations is is done. Of course, you you talk to journalists directly, but there's there was a different pace and there was a different expectation on how to build relationships. Uh, significantly bigger and more Scales. diverse media landscape. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll work back even further, even compared to Australia, going from Australia to the UK, the UK to North America, it is the size complexity of the media landscape that is the most different. And it, with all due respect, you can be a fantastic uh, publicist in the UK. There's a learning curve, even I think, for the most experienced to truly understand what drives this market? Who are the journalists that matter? How do you want, how do you uh, begin to the, build the right stories for them so you can build the right relationship? All of that takes a lot of time, and it was something that I found you know, very, very different. You know, I think it's underestimated between and market then the, and the sports media generally has changed so much so quickly, hasn't it? If you look at the Athletic, which didn't exist, but then was an online-only brand, but which is now the New York Times' sports yeah. desk, you know. Yeah become the sports desk is incredible to think that yeah. um, after they were acquired. So how has that changed the way you communicate? I mean, sports, sports media is, it's kind of stunning. I think we see a lot of headlines around newsrooms closing and down, 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 downsizing is what you would assume is happening within the editorial media environment, both for sport and for other verticals as well. You would think that is what is actually happening. But my personal opinion is some of these legacy mastheads maybe starting to come down, but what it's actually creating is a really exciting foundation of new and interesting um, publishers, we'll call them creators that maybe don't fit into the mold of traditional journalism, but are nonetheless carrying messages, um, building audiences and communicating with people in different ways. And that's happening very much so in sport. So whilst we still have ESPNs and we still have the growth of the athletic, I think you'll find that a lot of hardcore sports fans are following completely different and in very individual um, uh, creators that they trust. And that's who they get their sports news from. And they cover it from an angle that they they kind of like in a way that they kind of like with an opinion that they kind of like. So you dig those people out and you follow them. So as a communications professional, I think if you're still looking at the sports media landscapers, it's all about ESPN, The Athletic and Bleacher Report. They are supremely important but our job's a lot harder than just trying to master yeah, those ones. Yeah, like every team's got its fan channels and they're significant players. You've got um, your, I mean, just thinking of your own, my own personal uh, consumption, I'd be, I'll listen to the, I, and people may know I'm a Manchester United supporter, so I'll listen to the athletes. As am I. Well, there you go. Well, still, I knew there was a good reason for having you on the there show, Paul. I'll listen to the Athletics Manchester United podcast. I'll listen to the maybe Mark Goldbridge, who's the one of the United or some of the other fan channels. I'll 
read the Manchester Evening News still, and then of course there's Sky Sports, the yeah, broadcast, the overlap, uh, like, I NBC. Like the, yeah. the overlap yep. is fantastic. Yeah, get the Gary Neville and players, yeah. players, players getting involved. You know, Rio Ferdinand, etc. So that's just a small slice, and that's going on across every sport. Talk a bit about. And we talked a lot about sports, entertainment. Obviously, there's crossover. What are the major differences there? It's all. A, it's a lot about talent, but but the, there are obviously going to be uh, uh, differences between those two areas. Yeah, and I think when when we say entertainment, it, it's less maybe linear than just like a film and music. You know, I think fashion fits into there. There's lots of different types of, uh, I guess, streams of of creativity that w- that we service. But I think ultimately. Um, it's perhaps slightly more dynamic than the sports industry. And I mean, as it ha- sport happens on the field and we have our big four sports and things like that. So in a way you wrap your hands around sport uh, a little easier than you can wrap your hands around the idea of entertainment or even talking about music. You know, we are working with a few different clients, some within the music industry, some outside of it. They want to look to music as an opportunity for them to, you know, find that intersection, right? Between their consumer's passion and where their brand is. And you cannot go after quote unquote music. What kind of music are you gonna go after? What type of person are we trying to reach? And where is that uh, form of music at in its development? What do the, what does the community and the artists of that kind of music need? Okay, where can we be a platform or a solution to that? It's a very interesting conversation, but it's a hugely diverse, I talked about ecosystem, hugely diverse ecosystem to begin to try and understand and figure out where can a brand fit into that? So I think that exists in sport, I think in a way in the entertainment space, which is a lot broader. I think it covers a lot more different things. Um, takes a lot of elbow grease, right? To figure out where your role is and make yeah. sure you understand it. Yeah, it's become a production number, hasn't it? The whole, whether it's the ticketing part of the industry, don't get me started on that, but <laughs> around to the experience of the gig itself and the things around it. I mean, look at the Taylor Swift tour this Incredible. summer. Just that's a... a, a if you take Taylor Swift as a brand, it's just gone to another level of engagement and personal engagement and control of, of uh, her, her product, her creativity. So, um, yeah, lots of different things going on. What do you make of it all, Frank? You're, you're a big sports fan? Well, yeah, I know. I, I agree with all that. I, I also, I mean, look, I have a lot of opinions about, you know, where the money's coming from nowadays too. And mm-hmm. I think that a lot of the developments over the past couple of years – you know, whether it's with the live tour with golf, uh, and in some other areas are not necessarily good. And I think a lot of people, and I'm not a huge golf guy, um, are looking to see how this shakes out, how it changes things. Um, uh, you know, there's some controversy this week about who's on the Ryder cup team, mm. who's not, um, you know, guys from the live tour on the, not everybody's happy about that. And so is I, I think, when I say you guys, I mean, from the UK are seeing it a bit more with, you know, uh, governments from the Middle East acquiring soccer teams, American which you're not necessarily people. seeing here. <laughs> well, yes, that too. Um, but, but, you know, you're seeing it more than we are. And um, I don't necessarily think all this influx of, of money is a good thing. So I don't know, keeping an eye on it to see where it goes, right? Yeah. What about there are sports that have kind of declined, if I'm thinking yeah. about boxing, for example, has declined, whereas uh, mixed martial arts and uh, some of the other martial arts-based sports have just boomed, haven't mm. they? Horse racing is nowhere near as big as it used to be, for example. You could have said golf was in a bit of a decline. I think that's fair. You know, where some of the big sports goods retailers stopped 
carrying golf clubs. Yeah, and I think that's fair too. Um, so, so what's your take on that? Yeah, I just think there might be two interesting threads to pull on around maybe some of those declining sports and the investment that makes us all a little concerned. I think, yeah. you know, sports uh, bodies across different sports, take boxing as an example, have just let us down as fans so often, you know, yeah. like, you know, we want you to chaperone and look after the sport on our behalf. You know, this is, it's our sport, but it's like, we love it because we love what we get to see and we trust you to look after the sport and help us grow the sport. And I, I don't think that happens. And even from the biggest, even football, we don't see it on top of no. soccer football. Yeah. We don't see it and we haven't seen it in boxing. Um, and then I think the other side of it could be, you mentioned horse racing. I was at a sports conference earlier this year and actually met someone from the marketing team at uh, Churchill Downs. And he was saying, you know, I'm here to understand how I get young people to care about horse racing. <laughs> and I think, you know, it was, was obviously not something I had thought about. It was an interesting conversation with him, but the quest for all involved to try and understand how do we engage and reach a younger consumer that wants to engage with sport differently, wants to follow different sports. Um, you know, how do we capture them? How do we get them excited? It's probably one of the great things that we saw in the Women's World Cup is that young people, youth coach, they love women's sports. I feel like that's you get much more support. Yeah. And I think maybe that's going to help brands to wake up and see an opportunity in that. That might yeah. be how we reach them. Paul, the big question is, is chess the next big sport? That's a <laughs> personal passion point of mine. And uh, it got big with the Queen's Gambit. We've got a global superstar with Magnus Carlsen. What do you think? Um, no, listen, if, okay. it can, uh, no, not, not, if it can beat out pickleball, if it beats, I'll be happy if it oh, beats well, out pickleball, but we'll see. We'll see how it develops. That's a, that's been a great story mm. as well. Listen, good to chat. We can chat about sports and entertainment and music all day, can't we? That's, that's the beauty of what you do, I suppose. You're tapping into that. Everyone at work is probably talking about uh, what one of those things yep. uh, during their, their day. So, yeah, it's a The really TV is never story. off. The sport yeah. is constantly mm -hmm. playing. So if you want to catch a game, you head on, like, text a United game on a midday. Yeah. You're welcome, Steve, anytime. Aussie rules. Yeah, uh, all of it. It's crazy times of the day, uh, which we got a bit of a taste of during the Women's World Cup. We'll come on to that. So, Frank, let's talk about the US Open. I was lucky enough to go last night. It wasn't the best night, to be honest, because it was uh, Alcarez. He won when his opponent retired after a set and Venus Williams frankly uh, not the player she was so that was uh, but it's always a great occasion it was packed um, but it's as a branding opportunity we've been covering a few campaigns yeah that's right uh, the biggest one Moderna back as a sponsor of the US Open and really trying to get the message across in the more than just a COVID related brand um, and emphasizing all of the other things they do um, and talking about how they're trying to improve how healthcare is delivered, how it's accessed and obviously trying to bring that access to, to more people um, and so they're running a big campaign from August 28th through September 10th which runs through the World Cup which is in Queens and there's also uh, the angle of the U.S. Open being one of the convening events for people that uh, all across the agency business, you know, taking clients, taking yeah. guests. Um, and I've been told, you know, if you go, you're you're bound to see a lot of people that you know from from the work world there and, and maybe even on the train home for uh, possibly uncomfortable lengths of time that you have to stand by as uh, For those that don't have home. limos and uh, cars, yeah, <laughs> you have to 
try the G train from uh, Court Square. But anyway, enough of my uh, personal life. <laughs> Obviously, um, Paul, health, uh, pharma, health brands and well-being brands, there's a natural affinity with sports. So, you know, to see Moderna doing that, for example, is, is not surprising. But is that a trend across most sports that, that it, it weighs heavily toward, toward those brands or is it... Is, I don't think I, I, I personally wouldn't say it weighs heavily towards it. I do think we see, see a certain type of brand traditionally involved in sports like tennis, right? So I think that makes sense for, for Moderna. We see a lot of pharma brands, a lot of finance brands, a lot of uh, drinks, uh, compute, uh, computing as well, like IBM, yeah, brands IBM like this, yeah. you know, but I mean, to finance be, as well. A lot of finance. Yeah. JP Moore. yeah. Yeah. But I was just, just to your point though, I think that, that Moderna campaign's, you know, perfectly timed. It's a great use. I mean, the, the US Open is probably, I know we have football and NBA and yes, but true international sport. It's an iconic moment every year. And yes, it will see out summer and we'll, we'll head into fall. So it probably is a good idea to just give us a little reminder about getting a shot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Good point. The other thing I noticed last night was that they were touting equal prize money for mm. the for the last 50 years mm. they've been doing equal prize money at the US Open and that's a very relevant sort of is that not the case across tennis um i'm not sh i don't think so definitely not, sure. not at wimbledon yeah. uh not for certainly not for that long so um that that is very relevant as we kind of come on to our next topic which yeah. is uh women's soccer where clearly they're not getting equal um pay and and that's a big issue but there's, there's been more fallout. We talked about this last week with the sort of egregious yeah, behaviour. <laughs> just talk us through what's happening now, Frank. Yeah, it's uh, so there, there's basically a second week of protests um, about the behaviour of the Royal Spanish Football Federation President Luis Rubiales, who uh, in a sadly unforgettable moment, you know, was... was uh, forcibly kissed the star player Jenny Hermoso uh, from the Spanish world champion team. Um, and, and Hermoso has, has really gotten a lot of support uh, from, from men's players uh, in Spain and, uh, and really in Europe in general, which is good to see, uh, but also uh, women's players of all different countries, including some teams that the Spanish beat. Again, good to see. And, um, you know, there have been protests in Spain, but I have to say it's been a little concerning in that Rubiales seems to have a lot of uh, support within the Federation and, and, and uh, some other areas as well. Now, he's refusing to step down despite, it seems like, every single uh, person in, in, let's call it the Spanish FA, for lack of a better term, uh, yeah. you know, calling for him to step down and he's, he's sticking to his guns. So... Uh, we may have to check back on this one next week. Yeah, they're even threatening to. Uh, well, the manager the manager was controversial before the tournament, right. in that fifteen players were were decided not to play for mm -hmm. him, and um, only three of them came back into the squad. It's incredible they won actually. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It really is. Uh, given all this, and I just think it's so sad because it's taken away from their amazing achievement. They they were the best team. They played great great football. And it's just put a, as I think it was Megan Rapino who said, you know, not only got to fight on the pitch, but then they've got to fight off the pitch. And instead of her, the, her and the rest of her teammates celebrating this brilliant achievement, they're having to deal with all this crap, frankly. Um, and it's, it's a reminder, I blogged about this last week, actually, of 
a long way to go before there's gender equality across the board in 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 any form or fashion. It, it's just a throwback to some forms of behavior you thought thought were gone. And yeah, and totally if you if you think about it, just in terms of news cycles. I mean, this has been going on for more than two weeks now. I mean, mm-hmm. the tournament in and of itself is a month. I mean, that's just it's it's just a real bad look for that for for that Spanish federation. Yeah, and it came up in the UK with the whole situation around a Manchester United player, Mason Greenwood. You know, where um, uh, these discussions were all being brought up uh, in in that context. So, Paul, what do, what do you think uh, about that generally? And then, and how does that impact brands like Unilever, who you know? Um, worked, you know, went all in on the Women's World Cup and, and, and so they should, you know, it's a great opportunity yeah. to speak to a great audience. So I think on the on the Spanish team, I think you have, both of you have said it all, is a disaster and it's, it's super disappointing. I said this prior to, to, to opening the podcast that um, European football has been making dubious decisions relating to things like this for a long time. Whilst it's super disappointing for this to overshadow, as you said, it was a pretty phenomenal win. They beat a phenomenal team in the final. Um, feels like it's Go overshadowing. The lionesses. Right. It feels like it's overshadowing it a little bit. What I will say, though, is if this is a watershed moment to actually create some change that can be sustained and that women's sport, that, that football team can, can grow and, and women's football in, in Spain can grow, then... Then, then, then okay, this is what it took, and we're gonna we're, we're gonna make something of it. I really hope that's where it goes. Otherwise, it's been it's been really disappointing. Yeah, I, I find it's sad that we're talking about this rather than the, as I mentioned this in the blog in Australia. It was a, it was a culture changing. Mm. The host, mm. one of the host countries, you had spectators at Aussie rules games, not watching the game on mm. the field, watching the big screen where the penalty shootout was taking place of their t- team, the Matildas against France. That's for that. You know, let's face it. It's a fairly macho sports culture in Australia. That was, that was game changing. Wasn't it? Moved it? Our government, and, you know, it moved our government to yeah. invest more in women's sport, you know, yeah. which is something that they've been pushing for there for, for a long time. But I think, you know, it galvanized us. I have three sisters back home. They all have daughters. They, up until the Paul's women's an Aussie, Cup. just in case yeah, anyone sorry. could yeah. mention, he's lost a bit of the accent. But uh. yeah, yeah, it's, and I'm sorry. Apologies to any listeners if my accent is, is giving you a bit of a headache. But um, the girls were loving it. All all the daughter, all my all my nieces were absolutely loving it. Right. So and, and that was really nice for me to see on a personal level. I think to almost try and circle back to your question though, from a from a brand activation standpoint, I think there's been some brilliant work um, from a lot of different brands in a lot of different channels trying to get behind. Uh, either creating better channels to support the Women's World Cup when it was on, or trying to create programs that have true legacy for the long term. I saw a nice one, I'm pretty sure covered on PR week this week around Allianz, mm-hmm. right, in the square ball, which yeah. I just thought, hey, I love that, right? Yeah. I like the simplicity of that. Um, and what I, what I just hope to see and what I always believe um, with these types of activations from brands is, well, c- can we create something that truly has some meaning and some impact with the issue that we're trying to talk about and we're trying to move, because I think you'll see a lot of attention around such a seminal moment like the Women's World Cup. And the question becomes, well, how do we continue continue yeah. that forward and actually make make change? Yeah, Unilever's work was mm. sort of pitched as not just slapping logos on jerseys anymore, you know, doing something more substantial beyond that. And that's, uh, so we want to be talking more about that stuff and mm. the, the excitement around the sport of, amongst female and male fans, you know, they were the, the, the guys were getting into it as well. So, um, that's what I'll say, Steve, just to tennis, 
that's why tennis is brilliant because there are so there's more female players than there are male players in the US Open and there's some brilliant female champions in tennis. I feel like we see a lot of marketing towards women in tennis for a, for a lot, lot longer, which is brilliant to see. And I think there's a lot that can be learned and we can transfer over to some other codes. Yeah, for sure. Frank, one thing we haven't discussed is, which is a big developing area, and we have we have chatted before on the podcast about this, is NIL deals yeah. and college athletes finally managing to get a, a piece of the action, frankly, which was creating millions and millions of dollars for their schools and for the media companies. So, um Tell us a bit about that. And there was one particular um, activation we we wrote about this week. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm interested in Paul's take on another angle of this. But first, um, NIL deals, they're really about to burst onto the scene in terms of everybody's going to see them uh, as college football season kicks off uh, this weekend in earnest. So um, you're going to see athletes who have not had the opportunity to endorse brands in the past up until a few years ago after a Supreme Court decision um, be able to do that. And a lot of these a lot of these deals are very local. They're very they're around the college towns. They're in states where, you know, um, are outside of big markets. Uh, and so it's a really interesting opportunity for brands to team up with people who are really popular in certain regions. Uh, and get their point across. And one really interesting one is the San Diego State University college basketball team who went to the Final Four last year. They're really good. Uh, has Is um, working with the Justice Department uh, in what is said to be the first NIL deal for that federal agency. Uh, and it's an awareness about fentanyl. And uh, so a really important topic that that they're working on um, and I think, you know, it, it's smart by the federal government to to work with people who are well known on a local level uh, to be able to get their message across here. So I think it's it's probably going to be smart money spent. Yeah. The uh, great uh, bluegrass state of Kentucky doesn't have any professional sports teams at all in the whole state. So they are even more crazy about it. Uh, college sports there, especially basketball. Paul, NIL, has that been a new sort of revenue stream or new area of opportunity? And what's your take on the development there? I'm, I'm very intrigued to see the type of work we get from brands and how these partnerships manifest over this season. Because I think we've already, we see the full spectrum. That example is a brilliant example of how to really use NIL to talk about an issue that really matters, especially to that young consumer. And then I, I feel like last season, all we saw was memes and things on Twitter, making jokes about, you know, kids sponsoring local air conditioner, you know, suppliers and things like that. But the reality is I'm very interested to see the spectrum of the work. I think it's this brand new opportunity um, for, uh, for different brands to try and look at uh, uh, interesting local market activation and decide how they can, like I was saying before, find the intersection. Where is the interesting story we can tell through some of these partnerships? I think the the creative potential is ripe. I think we'll see brilliant national programming. I think we'll see brilliant local work. We'll see charity work. We'll see government. We'll see lots of different type of work, and we'll probably see some mistakes. What to do be you honest. What do you make of this fracturing of college football and the way it is all shaking out now with the Big Ten becoming essentially a national conference, uh, adding teams on the West Coast, and all of these really the college football leagues, but it'll include basketball too, uh, getting away from being regional leagues, which, which was the beauty of it in a lot of ways. You know, there were all of these, these hardcore rivalries between one state and another. And now you're going to have, uh, you know, in the Big Ten, Rutgers playing UCLA, which is not going to excite anybody, to be honest. You've, uh, so. you've, you've 
Vast, the most difficult question of a man who is both a sports purist <laughs> and a marketer at the same time. Because I, I honestly think there's so many, that specific conversation is, frankly, it's really interesting because there's so many ways into it. So first and foremost, yeah. are we, there is so much, le there's legacy in sports all over the world. There is so much legacy in American sports. There is so much legacy in college sports, right? So the fact that we've been able to shift that in other, in other areas, we're talking about baseball, probably going on air, things we can't change in baseball due to tradition, things changing in college football due to tradition, and unfortunately, the one consistent factor is money. Now, as a purist, I agree, college sport became what it is for a reason, because it was tribal, it was regional, and people really cared about their college university and wanted to support that team. When that goes away, to me, as a sports fan, I think that is sad. As a marketer, I think that unfortunately these associations are, are following the money and it feels yeah. like a natural progression. And then you factor in broadcasting and how that sort of works. So I think, I don't think I've got a, a sophisticated enough answer to, to, to consider it from each angle, but uh, ultimately maybe my final point would have to be that like sports will transition. My question becomes of the, uh, the college game. It's like, okay, well, what does this mean between NIL and the way the conferences have changed is how are we making the sport better precisely, both for the athletes and for the fans? I'm, I'm not, entirely clear on that at this point it's still early stages um but um, um yeah we'll see how it shakes out for sure i like your point about the local advertisers because if you've watched wrexham the ryan reynolds rob McEnany series the sponsor they had was ifa evans mm. tractors wasn't mm. it on the front of their shirt <laughs> which i love and all of a sudden it's TikTok and global brands get the tractors um, back on there i'm hoping they're looking after ifa yeah. and his yeah. tractors i yeah. suspect they are because yeah. they seem to be um that's a whole other conversation about how the people are getting involved in isn't tom brady trying to uh well, no he has to, they're all, he's, he's, he's bought into birmingham, uh, birmingham city yeah. has he yeah. it's it's I think crazy jj watts got burned yeah, yeah that's a different podcast but i have all takes yeah, yeah. around the, the yeah. americans the american football is getting involved yeah, in soccer for sure but uh yeah well lots to talk about anyway uh back to agency pr agency news frank edelman has hired uh, a new corporate lead yeah, interesting, um, interesting hire here and some interesting promotions because Edelman has named Alex Thompson as its global corporate affairs and impact chair. Uh, a big job. And also um, you see another one of the another part of the trend of people uh, coming over. Uh, from the corporate side yeah. to, uh, for big roles in agencies. And this is something that's becoming a lot more common. Uh, than it was a few years ago. And it's almost like the stigma's gone, right? Not that there's a stigma for working for an agency, but coming from the corporate world over, you just didn't see it a lot. So, yeah. you know, that's interesting. So um, the uh, Edelman's also promoted Julian Payne to global chair of crisis, in addition to his current role as chair of corporate affairs for Edelman EMEA. Uh, and there are some other healthcare promotions over there with Edelman promoting Courtney Gray hopped over to a newly created role of global COO of the agency's health sector. We know Edelman does a ton of work and makes a lot of revenue, bigger than a lot of standalone healthcare firms, uh, just specifically focused on healthcare, wellness, pharma, uh, and things like that. Now, back to Thompson for a second. We want to point out that he replaces Dave Sampson, who was a guest on the podcast just a few weeks ago, indeed. Uh, who is leaving the agency on September 1st uh, for a well-deserved retirement. Yeah, and Alex used to work at REI as head of comms, which was a big Edelman client. They did that famous Black Friday yep. 
thing where they closed their stores and said, get out and use our products, yeah. basically, and have the day off, which was a great campaign, much award-winning and copied by uh, many people. And uh, I think he worked at Edelman way back in the day as well. So, uh, yeah, good to see Alex back in the game. Um, so, talking of health and agencies, changes at uh, BCW. Yes, BCW has a new team, uh, in the interim at least, leading their North American healthcare practice uh, after the exit of Rocky Govel. Vicky Luco and Nina Scher are taking over as the interim co-leaders of the practice, which covers all of North America. Govel's being a, a bit tight-lipped about where her next move is going to be, so we'll follow up on that soon and interested to see where uh, she lands. She has been leading BCW's healthcare practice uh, since 2018 and transitioned into the role of North America lead in 2021. And finally, some sad news from the agency world. Um, uh, Finn Partners, uh, managing partner Jody Brooks, passed away last week. Very yeah, sorry this, is, this is a really sad story. Um uh, Jody Brooks was the managing partner for business development at Finn Partners. She died. She was 48. Um, she had been fighting uh, a brain tumor since 2020. Uh, she joined Finn Partners in 2018. She was an agency world veteran, uh, and she joined there in 2018 as a managing partner uh, and ultimately the global technology practice lead. Um, so, yeah, some really sad news to report from Finn Partners. I think Jody used to work at BCW as well, and... Um seeing some of the tributes on LinkedIn, you yeah. know, she had a great network and people spoke so uh, lovingly about her. So she clearly had a lot of influence in a lot of people's lives and uh, sympathies with her family and friends and colleagues. We are running short of time, but let's have a quick sweep through AI, shall we? Frank, you were a guest speaker up at Columbia. Yes. Getting a bit hoity-toity oh, on this, my friend. Um, yeah. What did you learn? Or what did, what did everyone learn from you? Yeah. I'll be I'll be doing next week's podcast in a, in a blazer with patches on with my a, elbows. With a, yeah, so, <laughs> and a, a, yeah. A, a, maybe a mustache with a few twirls. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Yeah, no, it was a great panel, and um, I'm really thrilled to be a part of it. But it's such an interesting and uh, subject because this is something on every agency's mind and every in-house team's mind, but I'm not sure how many of them actually have their arms fully around it. And, and there are a lot of angles that affect what they do, whether that's, you know, how AI is going to make their, it's, it, it's a combination of very exciting and very scary stuff at the same time. And that uh, it is going to reduce tasks that at one time would have taken hours to just a few minutes. And it's going to amplify how much people can do in one day. But of course, there are a lot of concerns, and I think this is more on the creative side, uh, about whose job it's going to take and um, how it's going to eliminate roles across agencies, You know, whether that's directors or writers. Uh, you see this, this impact on the writer strike. So um, a lot of really amazing possibilities and a lot of really frightening things, including just how few employees are aware uh, of yeah, how, how quickly you can just give away a company's IP uh, <laughs> into an AI platform that then uses it to teach itself on that IP uh, and inform other people about it. An extremely easy thing to to do if if companies are not informing their employees about it. It's it's a really fascinating subject. It's quickly changing. 
so yeah, thanks again to Columbia for having me on this panel. I mean, it was really one of those times where you learn as much as you uh, talk about because it's it's really interesting stuff. Yeah, this sounded like a real meaty panel. It was, not, not yeah. one of these usual, you know, oh, everything's changing, but we, we don't really know how sort of panels. There was yeah. some real meat to it. And we've seen a lot of media companies actually uh, trying to stop the AI robots if you like trawling their content they're closing off their content mm, yeah because for the ip reasons you you talked about and that's something i think every media company is looking at well, yeah we have and and then the other side of that too is if you look at the agreement the ap made with um i believe it was open ai a few yeah. months ago um you know company uh, media companies would know and this is definitely on their minds that uh there is a possibility that these platforms could replace some elements, if not all, of reporters or journalists' jobs, uh, and and they need to get ahead of the curve on that and and uh, figure out how they're going to play a constructive role with this going forward and how they can how they can make AI work for them. Um, look, the broad theme through all of this is that this can be a really helpful tool, but it is incredibly important to have a human touch on every aspect of it uh and make sure that that people themselves are producing their own work still and and doing these things in the appropriate ways because the ai does make a lot of mistakes and uh if you don't check it and you try to be lazy with the work you're producing through it you you will get caught and people will call you out on, on a pr week news desk yeah, well, I, it, I, I don't even mean in terms of uh in terms of media i mean across yeah, yeah, the board no. it can look it can look kind of cheap sometimes so yeah, for sure yeah, it's Paul, how stuff. is it impacting your world or is it a bit too early to say <laughs> I, I suppose it might be a little too early but a few things to pick up on there from you frank i think the human touch Honestly, what separates one agency from the next often is the relationships you build with your clients. So if we start letting AI write our work for us, I'm not quite sure what, what we're left with. We'll be now, ruled by robots. Precisely, Paul. precisely. So I, I think the human touch is important. The part, I think at the end of the day, though, personally, uh, I, I refuse to see it as anything but an opportunity for us to, to, to try and innovate how we do our work, how we do our work as a business, how we do our work with our clients, all these different areas. I, I, I refuse to see it anyway, but that. I'm very interested right Typical now. Typical Aussie optimism. Right, right. Now. Right. Yeah. right now, to be quite specific for us as an agency, uh, you mentioned the, the creative perspective. We're interested in how AI helps us not come up with ideas. How it helps us sell ideas, though, I think is really interesting. When we're talking about art direction and how we visualize ideas and things like that, AI can actually help efficiency in that way, um, uh, uh, can help us in a huge way um, in helping us kind of We'll devise the idea, but can we use different generative AI and different tools to help us maybe sell concepts um, basically a little quicker, a little bit more efficiently, and the turnaround time on work can be a little more speedy. Um, I'm very interested in, in how it can be used in that way. Fundamentally, though, our approach has been let's, as a team, use it in certain controlled environments so we understand precisely where it helps us and where it hinders us, spot those errors and try and react to it. But I won't pretend that we're, we're vastly ahead of the curve. We'll, we'll, we'll take our time with it and figure out where it fits. Yeah. Yeah, controlled environments is a key word there. And uh, if you're doing stuff internally, tap into one of those tools that makes it a closed environment that's not open to the right. general right. web because you can you could quickly find your own Google Mail or your 
DM chats suddenly being trawled could, through. Yeah. Which is scary, isn't Nobody it? wants that, Frank. No. Nobody wants that. Um, all right, Paul, it's great to chat to you. Um, yeah, sports and entertainment. We can talk about that all day. And uh, it sounds like a great field to work in. So continue to uh, good luck to you. Uh, don't forget our PR Week 25th anniversary party. It's at Sotheby's on the 21st of September. Invite only, but if you feel you should be invited, well, I guess you could ping, ping me. Um, PR Decoded and the Purpose Awards, very excited about that, in Chicago on the 11th and 12th of October with the Purpose Awards on the first evening, our biggest event of the year there conference-wise. It's always a good get-together. 40 Under 40, one of the most fun events of the year, 26th of October in New York City. And then the big Oscars of PR, the PR Week Awards, 25th anniversary edition is in New York on the 14th of March next year. Your first deadline, because you want, you've got to be involved in that, haven't you, is uh, 29th of September for entries. So make sure you get working on them if you haven't already. But that's all we've got time for. We'll see you next time on the PR Week.